Today is another Ask Rachel segment here on the Yoga Girl podcast, meaning you have asked beautiful questions and I answer. Today, we talk a bit about fear. We get a beautiful question around motherhood and parenthood and how we can sit with our fears and validate our fears versus telling ourselves that they're irrational. We also talk about meditation and how we can actually start and keep up a meditation practice, especially when our mind gets very, very busy. At the end of the show, we also talk about ritual and I answer some questions around rituals and ways we can make the mundane and day-to-day stuff in our lives feel more intentional and sacred. I had so much fun answering your questions today. Mothers deserve the absolute best. So this Mother's Day, spoil the moms in your life with little luxuries from Osea. Osea's skin and body care is the perfect way to remind all the moms, mother figures, caregivers, grandmothers, and mother-in-laws in your life to make time for themselves. If you have been looking for the perfect gift, I recommend Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I've been using it for years and it seems like every single time I apply it, I get compliments on my skin. This body oil is rich, but it's never greasy and it's clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. Your skin will feel more sculpted and toned and you'll be left feeling silky, soft and glowing. Another favorite of mine is the Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Ever since I've been using collagen, I have noticed a difference in in my skin. In fact, it's never been better. Using Osea's body oil and lotion together is a mega moisture duo, giving you a full body glow. Osea's products are infused with their signature Andaria seaweed, but it's also clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Really just a perfect gift for yourself, the moms in your life, and even the planet. Spoil the moms in your life with clean, vegan skin and body care from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code YOGA at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. Welcome, 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 my darlings. It's time for a brand new episode of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. I feel more than ever these podcast episodes truly are a conversation from the heart. Every time I sit down and I press record on my little recording device, I feel my heart so open. At least the past past couple of weeks, I really feel this this heart open, vulnerable, very sensitive, but in a good way. You know, I feel like sometimes we feel sensitive and it and it feels unsafe or we feel a little overwhelmed by our own sensitivity. Right now I'm feeling sensitive in the best of ways. Sensitive in that way that I feel very connected with you and with the world, and with nature, and with life. <laughs> okay, I'm a little sappy today. Apparently, I could could cry and we haven't even started talking yet. But yeah, conversations from the heart. So uh, we started, this was a month ago already, time really does fly. A month ago, I introduced a new segment on the show called Ask Rachel. And I'm so happy and so excited that you guys, you love it so much. And after that episode, we had so many new questions come in. 
And I really enjoy talking to you in this way. So I'm going to do exactly what I did last time, which is just without having listened to any of these questions before, I'm envisioning us all sitting present together in a circle. And I'm going to just press play and listen to these questions in order and answer from the heart. So I don't know where this conversation is going to take us. Let's jump in. Hi, Rachel. Um, my question is, you know, how do you deal with fears that come through motherhood? Um, I've had some, you know, like some people will call them irrational fears. And to me, they are very real, right? Um, like, for example, if my son is going to a field trip, like, what what if he starts being silly with his friends and he gets lost and the teacher is not paying attention and things like that? I, I understand that that must be something that is related to childhood trauma. And I would like to, to hear your take on how do you think we should approach those those fears that come with motherhood with, with the idea of having our children, right, like our almost like our hearts outside of our bodies in this little children that we treasure so much. Yeah, I would love to hear your take on that. Thank you. Hmm. Oh, what a <laughs> what a beautiful, heartbreaking, heartbreaking, unbelievably wonderful thing parenthood is. <laughs> it is so freaking hard and it is so freaking amazing all at the same time. I don't know if you heard a podcast I, I recorded, I, I released a, a little bit ago. It was about exactly this. I, I just shared very vulnerably my own fears and my own feeling of near, near terror that I experience at times. It comes in cycles for me. It comes in waves. And something that tends to trigger me very often is illness and potential illness happening to Leia. So anytime she gets sick, I have a really hard time keeping my feet grounded on the earth and I tend to spin off into crazy land. Um, with her, I am one of those people who, you know, she has a cough, I will go online and I can get lost in a rabbit hole of WebMD and I start convincing myself that she's really ill and I think of all of these worst case scenarios. So I, sharing this just to let you know, I, I know this fear very, very well and it's something that I have not solved, you know, it's not something that I have uh, freed myself of completely. And um, I don't think we're supposed to, you know, the things that are the most precious in life are precious because there is that component of, of not knowing in them. You know, really what makes, what makes life so beautiful is that we don't know what is around the corner, that nothing really is permanent. It is this wonderful, spontaneous excitement of being alive. And it's also absolute terror and panic all at the same time. And we're going to experience it from one of those two dualities, depending on how we feel. So I want to just start by saying that there is absolutely nothing irrational about your fears. And I feel like as parents, especially as mothers, we do this to ourselves and other people do it to us. We minimize our fears and our worries we tell ourselves we're crazy, we're overreacting, everyone else, you know, isn't like this, we're the only ones 
And by bypassing our fear, by ignoring our fear or trying to ignore it or pretending like it's not that bad or like it's not valid, we do ourselves a really great disservice, you know, because it means that we never get the opportunity to actually sit with and fully hold that fear and all the feelings around that completely on their own, the way they are. And anytime we experience a feeling and we bypass or we don't validate it or we look the other way, we try to escape, we try to avoid, we know that that's not what actually solves the feeling, right? That's not the thing that takes us through to the other side. But the more things we put away in a dark corner somewhere and we don't deal with, the more they're going to accumulate. So something that has been really a big eye-opening thing for me is understanding that every time I get scared, and this doesn't just apply to motherhood, but it's very, very present in my day-to-day around motherhood. I have other things that I fear and worries that I have, of course, but it's it's very big and in my day-to-day around Leia, around my daughter. Every time I feel scared, I feel a fear, and I don't allow myself to sit with that feeling. Every time that comes my way and I don't meet my needs immediately, I don't give that feeling and that fear some space. Every time a fear comes my way and I don't take care of myself in that moment, that fear ends up in a pile somewhere in my subconscious and it just grows there. And then the next time I'm fearful about something and I and I tell myself, this is irrational, this is stupid, just pretend it's fine, just suck it up, you know, ignore it, or, you know, I, I do that to myself. That fear ends up on that same pile. And then more, and then more, and then more. And then for everything that comes my way throughout motherhood, every little fear mixed with the big ones, mixed with the urgent ones, mixed with the ones that happen every day, all of a sudden becomes this big festering pile of panic and fear and terror that lives in my subconscious. And I think that's what leads me to have moments that might, you know, to other people seem very irrational, like something that actually is fairly safe, that actually isn't objectively a scary thing, something that I might think is is a little bit silly, or I shouldn't be panicked about that. You know, like you're, you're mentioning the school trip. I can so, <laughs> I can so, so, so understand you there. And uh, something like that, where, okay, Leia has a trip, but she's going somewhere with school. She goes once a week, they go in a bus and they go on the big highway. They go to another town where they go to this cultural center with her school for music and dance class. It doesn't happen at her school. It happens elsewhere every single week. And the first time she went on that trip, I had this big moment of, wait, they just take all these kids, they pile them in a bus, they go on the highway to another town. I don't know that town. I don't know anybody there. I I don't even know these teachers so well. I had a very, very fear-based response to this very exciting thing for her. You know, it's her favorite thing is dance and music and and getting to play instruments. I mean, it's, it's a really exciting thing. And I just felt so very fearful. And then I tell myself, well, you know, kids go on field trips all the time. Literally every day, all day, children are going with their class to experience things. 
it's a super normal thing. Why am I all of a sudden thinking of all the ways that, yeah, Leia's going to get lost in a town she doesn't know or the teachers are going to not pay attention and she tends to wander off. You know, she does her own thing or what if there's an accident on the highway? My brain just starts spinning. So it's less about the thing that she's doing or the thing or the experience that's happening in that moment. It's less about the situation than it is about my state of well-being in that moment. She has had other experiences, other things where she's gone with someone that I didn't know that well and gone on a trip or gone with a friend that might objectively be a little bit scarier, you know, that might be less safe where I have felt completely fine and I just kiss her on the cheek and have fun. Bye. See you later. And she off she goes. Right. So why is it that certain times I react with complete panic and fear and certain times I feel very grounded and very okay in, in letting her off into the world? And it just is a reflection on my groundedness in that moment. How much time have I spent taking care of myself? Am I feeling overwhelmed? How am I sleeping? How am I eating? How am I taking care of my body? How stressed am I in my day to day? How many other things am I dealing with right now? Do I have old traumas or old triggers or difficult family stuff coming up? Do I have maybe past real scary scenarios that I am working on healing right now that makes that very valid sense of fear all of a sudden live at the forefront of my consciousness? So what I try to do is, is first, you know, objectively assess what's happening. And if it's something like that, like, okay, she's going on a field trip, objectively, if I ground myself in my mature consciousness here now, and sometimes I need to ask my husband for help with that. Sometimes I genuinely don't know. I feel like I can't trust myself because I feel so fearful so much of the time. I have to, I need like a reality check. Like, hey, could you do a little reality check with me right now? Is it, you think it's a dangerous thing, what they're doing? You think there's anything unsafe about them going there to this place? And then he can give me that reflection from his objective point of view, you know, and he knows I'm fearful. So hopefully he'll do that with some love and actually with presence and not saying, oh my God, don't be stupid, right? Because that's not helpful to someone who's feeling a very serious fear about something. So he might say, oh, you know, but it's that place. You've been there, actually. And remind me that, oh, yeah, we went for coffee at next to that culture center there in that town. Actually, I do know that place a little bit. And you know what? It's not far at all. And they've been going every single week for years at this school. It's something they do all the time. It's the same thing as like they go to the park. or So then he just, you know, kind of assures me that, no, he, he feels like it's a really, it's, it's fine. It's a safe thing to do. Okay. Then I have that reality check of it's not an unsafe thing objectively, but I am feeling unsafe right now. So actually, she's safe. She's fine. She's good. But I'm not. So the thing that needs tending to is not what my brain is telling me, which is I need to tend to Leia. I need to keep her home that day or I need to, you know, go to her school and talk to the parents and make sure they are keeping the kids safe. You know, I don't need to I don't need to be that parent in that moment because that's not the thing that's ultimately is going to help me feel more safe. Right. And sometimes those things help. So it's really important that we give ourselves that little check-in. Is this a situation where I just need more information? And that might mean that we just have to be okay with being that parent that 
calls the teacher an extra time or that asks more questions at drop off or that needs to orient themselves a little bit more around new situations. And it's okay to be that parent if that helps you feel more grounded and feel more safe. I mean, this is your child. It's the single most important thing that you have in your life. I would rather be that parent knowing that that's going to help me stay grounded and ask extra questions compared to a parent like Dennis, for example, who feels so relaxed about everything all the time, would send her off doing anything feeling really great, you know, most of the time. So is it helpful for me to inquire a little bit more to get more information? Or is it just going to spin me off into that, into that rabbit hole of no matter what I look to, no matter what answer I get, I'm still not going to feel safe. Because if that's the case, then it's kind of like comparing your kid being sick, and then you find yourself on WebMD, and then you go to this article, and then that article, and all of a sudden, it's two in the morning, and you're on your phone just convinced that your child has some sort of horrible, incurable disease. Probably that process isn't helpful, right? That's not one of those moments where getting more information is going to help us feel more safe. What can I give myself in that moment of real fear? If I have the information I need, I know objectively in real, you know, realistically, my child is safe. What can I give myself to feel safe? What does my inner child actually ask of me in this moment? So something I like to do when I'm feeling that sense of overwhelm, if I've done all the little things and I know she's going off to something or something's happening is I take a moment to myself and it can be a five minute in the car closing my eyes, hand to heart and belly and just checking in, you know, how am I doing? What do I need to steady myself right now? And staying really open to the fact that the answer to that question should be most likely is different every single time. It's not always going to be that same thing that you go to, right? Which is why that check-in is so important. What do I need here? Do I need to call someone and make sure that the thing that's happening here is actually going to be safe? Or do I need to go home and take a nap? Do I need to resource myself somehow? Do I need to come to my tea practice, my yoga practice, cook something nourishing? Do I need a break? Do I need to ask someone for help? Maybe, and I find this often to be very true, what I need to do is to have someone actually really listen to me and hold space for me while I share about this fear that I'm feeling. For someone to hold me when I cry, to have a shoulder there to lean on, to have some kind of loving, quiet, non-judgmental, non-advice giving presence there just to hold me while I feel those feelings that are so very, very hard. And I find that Every time I do, when I validate that fear, I acknowledge that what I'm feeling is valid. This is very real for me. It's very real. It doesn't mean that the objective fear of her danger, imminent danger, is, is real or true. But my fear is ver- about it is very real and true. So I can validate my own fear and my own feeling without having to affirm that the thing that Leia is doing is dangerous and scary. Right? My feelings of fear are true. Even if she's really safe, I still feel unsafe. So validating that, giving myself that space to feel that, to talk about the fear, to share it, to bring it out into the open, to shed some light on it versus telling myself I'm irrational, 
put that fear on the fear pile in my subconscious and then have that pile of fears just grow and grow and grow and grow until I actually become irrational. Because that's what happens, at least what I find in my own personal experience is when I when I don't validate my fears, the little fears all of a sudden become really big. It's kind of like we have a limited amount of space to hold fear in our being. And when that space fills up and gets really, really, really big, all of a sudden, all of life feels unsafe. And everywhere I look, there is danger and everything feels bad and not grounded and shaky and scary. And actually what's going on is that I'm sitting with all of these unfelt emotions that I'm kind of gaslighting myself in a way, telling myself I'm stupid, this is not real, this doesn't matter. When actually it is real and what I need is to show myself the same kind of compassion and support that I actually show my child when she's scared. When Leah comes to me saying, mommy, mommy, I'm scared. I'm really scared. Sometimes she does at night. Um, sometimes she has a bad dream. Sometimes something is scary, right? Do I tell her, don't be stupid. Don't be silly. That's not real. That's not a real thing. That's not a real fear. Don't. That's a silly thing to be scared of. No. I would never in a million years do that. You know, I squat down, I get down to her level, I look her in the eye, I hold her, I let her tell me about the thing that's scary, and I affirm to her that feeling. I validate that experience. Oh, wow, that must have been so scary. Oh, I understand that that could be really scary. Oh, and then what happened? Or then how, you, how do you feel? And what do you need right now? Do you want mommy to come lie in bed with you for a little bit? Do you want me to turn a light on? Do you want to come sit with me for a while? Do you want to hug? I give her some options to reach for so she can choose, well, what would be helpful for me? But most importantly, I tell her that her experience is real and true, that she's not crazy. Because telling someone, no, that's not scary. That's not in a million years going to help that fear go away. All that's going to do is make that person feel really alone. And I think... Especially as parents, when we feel all of these fears that we do on a regular basis all the time, we don't talk about them, we don't validate them, we tell ourselves and other people that, that that's just silly. We feel really, really lonely. It gets really lonely to be a parent in that way. And we feel like we don't have the support that we need. And probably everyone else is managing so fine, right, with this kind of stuff. I bet you if you if it feels good and, and safe to do so and something that could be helpful, talking to other people about those fears as they come your way. And sometimes our partners aren't the right people for this. And maybe they are, and sometimes they are. But I find that when I am experiencing one of these fears and I go to another mom, I go to a, a mom friend, or maybe even a mom of someone in Leia's school whose kid is experiencing the same thing, and I just share, hey, this thing that's that's happening here, it made me feel really, maybe maybe a little scared. You think it's safe what they're doing? Or just kind of balancing that with someone who, who is in my same place. Then all of a sudden I get that feedback of, oh, you know, I felt just like that in the beginning. You know, we went, um, we went tubing with Leia the other day, yesterday, two days ago. Tubing as in you tie this big kind of round tube thing to the back of the boat and uh, I am terrified of water sports terrified deathly scared of water sports I am no ch I have no chill 
at all. Like I, I and I knew already. Okay, we're gonna do this thing. She's so excited. Probably it's safe, but maybe it's not. It's water. It's speed. It's a boat. I couldn't really rationalize that to myself. That like you know you're being silly with this. It feels like a real fear. And I went with her on the tube and I was trying to keep it cool and trying to be relaxed and I was not. And let me tell you, she had a terrible time with me on the tube. It took me, I don't know, two minutes to realize, okay, this is bad. I, I, I really hate this. I feel so unsafe and it's making her feel unsafe, right? I'm, I'm telling that story out loud. Stop, 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 stop. Too fast, too fast. Slow down, slow down. No, 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 no. Not that, you know, I'm in my fear. And she doesn't have this experience yet. She didn't feel any fear around that experience at all. You know, she's wearing her life jacket. It's her dad and her uncle driving the boat, you know, who care about her so much. They're not being reckless. So I just said, you know what? I'm going to bow out. I don't want to be here for this. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in the water. Let's trade. So we traded. She got to go with my brother. And I spent most of that ride not even really looking at them. Because that's how fearful I felt. And uh, Dennis just held my hand and they went and she hasn't stopped talking about it since then. It was the most fun she's ever had. She was just shrieking with laughter, having the most amazing time bonding with her uncle, feeling comfortable in the water. You know, there's so many experiences there that I want her to have. And again, just reaffirms to me that my fears are for me to deal with. It's my job to keep her safe. Yes. And of course, anytime she's actually unsafe, I have no doubts I will step in and do what I need to do to keep her safe. But majority of the fears that I feel in my day to day, I don't actually have to interject, you know, actually interjecting might mean robbing her of a really beautiful experience. And it's my fear to deal with. So how can, how can I take care of myself versus controlling the situation she is in, right? It's a, it's a lifelong journey, this one. But I really do believe that the more we talk about it, the more we air it out, the more we share, and the more we come back to validating our own experience, the easier it gets and the more grounded we're going to feel next time. Thank you for asking such a, such an important question, especially for all the many parents listening. Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where Ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. 
Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Let's go to our next question. Hi, Rachel. So my question is related to meditation. I have been trying to get into meditation, and it's been very difficult, even though I feel great after I do it. How do you calm all the chatter outside of your mind? How do you let go of all the noise outside so that you can actually focus on the noise inside and just calm that one down? Any tips on how to become better at meditating, like maybe how to, I don't know, get um, a practice going that is more sustainable, because I really want to do it. Again, I do feel really good when I do it, but it's just the the actually having the time and, and, and putting it there to actually sit down and do it. Oh, I, I am loving this question because... It's a, it's a conversation I just had with a really good friend of mine about where we are in our meditation practice right now. I uh, thank you for, thank you for, for calling in and asking this. So first thing I want to say is the fact that you repeated, I think twice in this question, just how good you felt after having meditated. That tells me that you were indeed able to quiet your mind, at least to some degree. The fact that you felt really good and that you feel this longing to continue and to return to it tells me that that probably what you experienced wasn't just chatter and noise, but there was silence in the in-between or something about the, that experience that was rewarding for you. A sense of grounding, that just the practice of coming to a quiet place, being in our bodies. You know, there are so many benefits to a meditation practice. And uh, I want to just validate and really affirm to you that there is something that you found very rewarding and very precious about that moment or that experience that you had. So holding that. And um, I, I would like to reframe or reframe a little bit the idea that we have of what meditation is. I think we have been told and we read in books and, and here online, this idea that meditation means to completely silence the mind, that that's what meditation is. It's sitting down on our meditation cushion, closing our eyes, focusing on our breath and boom, mind goes silent. And when we have this idea that that's what meditation is, for the majority of us, I'm going to go ahead and say 99.9% .9 of all of us, that means that anytime we sit down to meditate, that we are unsuccessful. 
that we either didn't do it right or we didn't get to the end destination that we were supposed to get to, meaning a quiet mind and a totally peaceful and silent state. For me, meditation is not that. Meditation is not the arrival to the destination of the completely quiet, silent mind. It is the practice and the journey toward that place. That's what meditation is. It's the actual journey toward more silence. But it doesn't mean that we are going to be experiencing silence all the time as we meditate, especially not in the beginning, especially not in the beginning. So holding, really fully holding and accepting the fact that as a human being, we have a mind, we have an ego. And what this mind is here to do, literally the mind's job is to produce and think thoughts. That's what the mind does. And 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 you have a mind and I have a mind. So when we sit down and we quiet everything else, we get quiet, we stop talking, we start listening, the body gets still. What is the mind going to do? The mind is going to continue to produce thoughts. It doesn't mean that there is something wrong with our minds or that we have a mind that's more complicated or more difficult or louder than anybody else's. It's just the mind doing what the mind does. And when we have this label attached to it or this judgment attached to it, like the mind isn't supposed to do that. The mind's supposed to be quiet. We don't want these thoughts. That means that we're entering our meditation practice from a very, almost from a negative place. It's like, we don't want that. We want the silence, but it's not silence. We get frustrated. We might, you know, we, we, we want the quiet and then the mind thinks another thought and then we get frustrated with the thought and it's like the mind coming in through the back door and then we're in this loop of getting frustrated because we're thinking and then frustration leads to more thoughts, which leads to more frustration, which leads to more thoughts and judgment and round and round we go, right? So by accepting and expecting the mind to continue to think and produce thoughts as we sit in our meditation practice, we can become a little bit more neutral around the thoughts and around the thinking that happens. We can attach less emotion and less judgment and less of that feeling like something's wrong or something's bad, like we're not succeeding with our meditation when that happens. So I like to to come to a comfortable seat and... Something that's helpful for me, this is not relating to to specifically this, but just a little tool that I find very, very helpful to still my mind a little bit more is to have a pre-decided set of minutes that I'm going to be sitting. When I decide as I sit down, okay, I'm sitting for 20 minutes or some days I'm sitting for five, I set a timer on my phone and I make sure I have my phone on airplane mode or the do not disturb so I don't have any, you know, interference but I have that timer on, that immediately helps calm something in my mind because I don't have to think about when am I done? How long am I going to be here? Is this a good enough time, amount of time for me to sit? Should I sit for longer? How long has it been? You know, it's like just the time thing can sometimes make at least my mind go a little bit bananas. So when I know this is the space I'm in and when those minutes are up, there's going to be a little bell, you know, I'm going to hear it and I'll know that immediately can calm. Just having that structured space of time to begin and to end is really helpful. But when I sit, you know, regardless for the time that I'm sitting, I am expecting my mind to continue to think. 
So that means every time a thought pops into my head, I'm doing all the things. Sometimes I work with mudras or mantras and I, I can get into some breathing techniques or breath work before I begin. It doesn't matter really. And I, and I know that now it does not matter how much preparation I do in my meditation practice. My mind is going to think there is going to be thoughts. There is going to be distractions. There isn't going to be, if I'm deciding for 20 minutes, I don't get 20 minutes of undisturbed, complete, enlightened silence. Maybe one day I will get there. I don't know. Hasn't happened to me yet. But what I do know is that when I expect the mind to continue to think thoughts, I don't get frustrated about it. And I can be very neutral as I approach the mind. And I notice a thought pops up. I get distracted into that thought. I catch the thought because I'm noticing it, right? And I love just this contemplation on its own becomes a very a deepening of the meditation. When I, I think a thought or a thought is there, I get lost in the thought, I get distracted, but then I become aware of the fact that I got lost. I become aware of the fact that I'm thinking. Who is it that thinks the thoughts and who is it that becomes aware of the thinking, right? So as I become aware of the thinking, there's that deeper level of consciousness there present, recognizing that, oh, I got distracted. I, I, I went into this thought there and I bring myself back and I hold that presence again. And then another thought comes and I realize, oh, I got lost in that thought. My awareness is there to catch that and I bring myself back. So in the beginning, when we start, because it's new, because we don't have this practice of, of working with the mind in this way, of stilling the thoughts or beginning to still the thoughts in this way, we might even find that our thinking, it's not even individual thoughts. It's just one long stream of endless chatter, right? Like it, it never ends. It's just one thing after the end and everything, it's just endless, and then as we practice and the more we spend time bringing our awareness to the present moment, recognizing and learning how to catch when we leave the present moment, the more we start to break this chatter up. And instead of it being one long, endless stream of distraction and stuff, all of a sudden we have little gaps there. You know, we catch ourselves that consciousness comes in, we bring ourselves back to the present moment, back to this moment, this inhale, this exhale, this place in the body. And all of a sudden, we have that space of silence there. And then a thought comes, right, and takes us away. And then we come back. And I find that this practice, the returning, right, the catching ourselves as we get distracted, as we leave the moment, and the bringing of ourselves back home, that's the meditation. The returning again and again and again, that's the, the practice. The practice isn't closing your eyes and then boom, you know, complete silence and peace. No, you know, it wouldn't be called a practice if that was it. It would be just arriving at that destination and then <laughs> being done. The returning and the coming home. And sometimes I have sits where I constantly, I find myself checking out, checking out, getting lost in a thought, getting lost in a train of thoughts. And then I catch myself and I can even trace back like, whoa, how did I get to that thought? And then I 
I do that little thing where I trace my thoughts back from when I left. And it's wild. And it's a really beautiful practice of consciousness, of developing that consciousness to recognize and hold how, how we leave and how quickly the mind takes us far, 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 far away. And the more practice we have of coming back to the moment, the easier it's going to be to catch ourselves and to notice when we leave. And that's what expands our awareness. And eventually we start doing this, not just in our meditation practice, but in our day to day as well. You know, we'll be able to practice mindfulness and practice being fully immersed in the present moment as you are standing in line at the grocery store or cooking dinner for your family, or when you find yourself frustrated or triggered by something, recognizing the big thoughts that show up and how they take our peace so quickly. And then having that ability to notice that and to catch ourselves and to bring ourselves back home. It's so precious, this practice. It really is, that that really is how meditation starts to have an impact on our day-to-day life. Not just in that it can make us feel more calm and grounded and it can help us manage stress, but it can actually change how we live our lives and how we perceive and react to what comes our way. And also just, you know, anything we begin with being a beginner in any practice is hard, is hard. Take yourself back to the first time you did something that you now do all the time you know, say it's yoga, maybe you've practiced yoga for years. Just remember that very first downward facing dog. Oh, I I think of my first downward facing dog, that was not a comfortable place for me to be. It was painful. It was awkward. It was heavy, arms shaking, shoulders getting tired, back of the legs super tight. You know, you look at someone who's never in their lives done a downward facing dog. That is not a resting pose. It's not a comfortable place to be. It is extremely challenging. And it will take how how many? Hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many downward facing dogs until we find a level of comfort in that down dog. It doesn't happen in the first 10 or 20 or maybe even 50 times, right? So keep showing up for that practice. Trust that part of yourself that felt good at the end of it, that felt at peace at the end of it. Keep connecting to that place. Even if your mind is very busy, expect your mind to be very busy, but return to the practice again and again. And in the practice, return to the moment, return to yourself again and again. Let's take another question. Hi, Rachel. My name is Anna and I am currently listening with you in Pittsburgh. I have recently become obsessed with finding little rituals or ways to make routines into ceremonies, whether it's something mundane like skincare or hair care or some more celebratory event like a birthday. What are some of your favorite and most used rituals or ceremonies? I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts because your New Year's ceremony is one of my most treasured rituals in my toolbox. I guess our toolbox. And you can't see this, but I typed a little heart uh, at the end of my message because it feels like I'm talking to a friend. Anyways, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to hearing an answer. Bye. Oh, this was so sweet. Hi, I do feel like I'm talking to a friend too. Oh, this is so much at the heart of, of my life right now. 
turning routine into ritual, taking the mundane and making it sacred. I feel like over the past years, it's been really at the center of what I want to create in my day-to-day life. And I think when we feel this longing for ritual in our lives, what we're really looking for is we're looking for meaning. We want our days to feel purposeful and feel like they have meaning. We want to be present in life. And that's one of the things that that ritual really gifts to us or really brings us is the ability to take a regular thing, like a regular experience that you have in your normal life, and you get to slow it way down and you get to be totally present with yourself in that experience. And really what we want, I think what we're all longing for, we want to feel that sense of presence all the time, right? We want to be here for life. At least, I mean, at least that's that's how I've been feeling for a long time. I, My life used to move so quickly and I used to be in such a rush to get so many things done and I used to work so hard all the time. I think I had that feeling like I was missing out on a lot in my own life. Even though I was there for it, I wasn't fully there for everything. So just want to honor that, that longing for meaning, that longing for presence, that longing to want to be fully immersed in the beauty and also in the, in the hardships of life. Because ritual is not something that traditionally that we only do for good things, or I'm using air quotes for good, for celebrations and things like that. But ritual is something that we can use in difficult times to help us with transitions and you know, rituals that maybe we don't think so much about as rituals are funerals and things that we do when someone has died. There is a lot of ritual in there, even though we might have been a bit conditioned as as we grow older to think of those things as a drag or something that has to get done. I think in many of the things that we do and that we gather for, we have lost a little bit of the original intention around And we can take also those existing rituals, like you said, like a birthday or a wedding or an engagement or exciting things and heavy things, right? Like dealing with loss and things like that and make them sacred again. So you're asking me about, about rituals that I do in my day to day. So I have, I have, I have many, one that I talk about a lot and that I, I share in social media quite a bit, or at least little, little glimpses of is my ritual with tea. And my ritual with, with tea or sitting in, in ceremony with tea really is, I think for me, the most amazing and really clear example of taking something that I have engaged with for most of my life. I have been a tea drinker for as long as I can remember. My family's huge on tea. My grandparents were really big drinking tea. I've, we've always been drinking tea, or I've always been drinking tea in my in, in as for as long as I can remember. But it wasn't anything special, right? It was just something that I would have at the end of a meal or to begin my day. And when I slow that, because really what I'm doing in ceremony is I'm drinking tea. It's the same thing that I used to do, except you know instead of sitting at my kitchen table, I'm at my tea table. Technically, I'm doing the same thing, but it's very, very, very different. 
because of the presence I bring into the ritual. And most importantly with tea is the fact that I honor and recognize tea as plant medicine. I am now open to the energetic and physical and emotional qualities of tea as medicine versus before I would tear open a tea bag and not think so much about what what is this thing that I'm steeping in hot water every single day? Why am I drinking it? Why am I drawn to it? How does it make me feel? How does it change my, my consciousness or my state of being right now? I never contemplated that before. So the ritual of tea, I come to every day at some point and I go through cycles of of drinking tea only in the morning and then I go through cycles of of mainly sitting in the evening I am back in a in a morning tea space right now but it's really become one of my most sacred moments in my day it has the way my yoga practice used to be that it used to be and it hasn't been that for me over the past couple of years but my yoga practice used to be the first thing I did in the morning and I would light candles and incense and roll out my mat and bring my notebook and my pen and my crystal. I would set up that very, very sacred space and I would practice intense vinyasa for 90 minutes and then I would journal and then I would, you know, I really had that, that sacred space created, which changed for me a lot since becoming a mom and became less of that dedicated, here is how I begin my day, that ritual of every morning, same time, same thing. And more, okay, I'll roll out my mat over here, you know, when I have five minutes left to spare, or sometimes I'd have a baby crawling all over me, or it became more casual for me, my yoga practice, and not less sacred, it still is one of the most sacred practices I have, it will always be, but it became more mundane than ritual after I became a mom. And I think it's okay for us to go through those seasons of, of shifting between rituals or rituals becoming more or less important as we, as we grow and as our lives change. What's important is that we have a little toolbox of rituals that we can return to and come back to that, that help bring about that sense of presence and sacredness. Something else that I really am loving now, a very new, this has become a, a fairly new ritual for me, but I've just recently over the past couple of months realized that this definitely is a ritual and sometimes this is how rituals come our way is we just start doing something we immerse ourselves in an experience and then again and again and again and then we realize wait this is extremely important to me this is very sacred for me and then we make that decision of well here is my my time for this and when we decide that this is actually a ritual of mine, we have our, the space to set an intention before we start, you know, to really become very dedicated around it as a practice versus something that casually happens. So I think intention is an important part of ritual, of course, as well. And that is for me, my practice of foraging right now. It, it, it used to be, of course, that I didn't forage so much in the wintertime because there's not that much to forage. But since springtime, it's become a ritual for me to, in the morning, usually after my tea practice, my tea sit, to put on my shoes or barefoot, depending on how, how warm it is, grab one of my baskets. And even this has become part of, of the ritual. I have many little baskets that I use for foraging. I have 
metal ones and I have woven ones. I have different kinds from different places, different sizes and shapes. Even picking the basket I want to take with me as I head out has become part of that. It's like the preparation for, for the ritual in a sense. And then I head out into the garden or I head out onto the land. Sometimes I head out into the woods just with the intention of foraging something. And I don't know what I'm going to forage. I don't know what I'm looking for sometimes. Sometimes it's just keeping my eyes open. What is flowering now? What is coming alive now? What's, what's, what's present here on this land? Because every day I find something new, right? And bringing my little scissors, I always take a moment before I forage something to place my hands on the ground and take a deep breath. I thank the earth for offering such abundance to me and to my family. And sometimes I'm able to really feel into the energetic quality of the plant or the almost the personality of the plant. And sometimes the plant doesn't want to be foraged. I had that happen the other day where I went to forage some raspberry leaves and I just kept stinging myself on the thorns or pricking myself on the thorns. And then I realized, hey, actually this this is not, this plant doesn't want to be, doesn't want to give right now. And then I moved on and I went somewhere else. So, and then taking my plants home and then either I dry them, I sometimes put them in the dehydrator. Sometimes I put them straight into a cup and I just make an infusion with them that I drink on the patio. It's a little bit different each time, depending on what I've found. Sometimes there's an element of research that comes along with whatever I've foraged. If I'm foraging something that I'm just getting to know or that I want to know more about, but it's definitely become a ritual for me. And I know that because I, I set an intention before I go, I slow everything down. I get to be totally present for what, with what I'm doing and I'm repeating it the same way every time. So that for me is a is a really beautiful example of how something mundane, something everyday can become a ritual if we make it so. So yeah, that's where I am now. I mean, another example that I that I love to come to is my husband has the ritual of, of making coffee every morning. And for him, I don't think he would say, I don't think he, he would say, oh, well, this is a, a spiritual thing or a sacred thing. But just by how looking at him and how he approaches making coffee in the morning, he does it with so much presence, with so much dedication, with so much excitement. And he does it exactly the same way at the exact same moment of our day, every day, every day. So that definitely is a, is a ritual in our family, but it's more his. I get to enjoy the fruits of the ritual, but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so involved in the espresso making. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have any um, any more. You mentioned, you know, hair care and body care and things like that. The ritual of a bath. I uh, I, I do more. I I did more in the winter and the cold season than I'm doing now. But the ritual of a bath is a special one that I feel like we could all bring into our lives. You know, the ritual of connecting with water. I find so so special, so so special. Thank you for asking this beautiful question. And I think um, I think this is where we're going to end today. And I would love just for everyone listening, take a moment right now to contemplate something that you do in your everyday that maybe you haven't fully acknowledged and honored as a ritual, but that actually has the potential of becoming one. 
something that you do or that you immerse yourself in every day that that is special to you that brings about that deep sense of presence that maybe you have a little intention around or that you repeat in the same way that thing that you don't want to be without every day are you aware of the fact that this could be a very important ritual in your life and how could you infuse more presence into that practice and make that practice even more sacred and more special I find that the more we work with our own hands, the more the more we connect with the earth and whatever we're doing, the easier it is for those rituals to really come about, you know. And I, I, I'm thinking about this, as you said, this kind of sparked as uh, in, in the question about body care. I'm making some infused oils right now, just using some herbs and flowers that I've foraged out in nature and using those oils immediately becomes more of a ritual than when I grab whatever I bought at the grocery store. You know, so how can we get back to the most foundational in a way and really become the creators of these magical moments that that don't look like much on the outside, but that actually make up so much of the joy and the sacredness that we experience in our day-to-day lives. We are all longing for more of the sacred. So see if you can connect with maybe a new ritual you want to invite into your life or an existing one that you want to make even more sacred. And then make sure you come back to that again and again. I have loved talking with you today. I really, really have. Thank you so much for being here, for asking questions, for listening. I um, <laughs> I definitely never, ever, ever will take this for granted or the fact that we're here and you're sending in questions and I get to talk with you every week. It's my favorite, my favorite. If you would like to call in and ask a question, I would love to hear you. I would love to hear your voice. I would love to hear what you have to ask, what you have to say. The number that you call to ask a question for these Ask Rachel segments is 720-443-1771. That's if you are in the U.S. 720-443-1771. If you are outside of the U.S., you put a plus one. So that's plus one, 720-443-1771. Don't forget to leave your name where you're at. Try to keep your message at around a minute or so. You can go a little longer. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And uh, maybe you will hear your own voice on the next Ask Rachel podcast here on the Yoga Girl podcast. I love you so much. Have a beautiful, beautiful rest of the day. And I'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and for tuning in to Ask Rachel. If you enjoyed this show, make sure you listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, and wherever you normally get your shows. And of course, a big thank you to my sponsors. Make sure you support them the way they support this podcast. This was a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. I'll see you next week.